Episode 75, The Red Telephone. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to a February 25th, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about objects featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Two floors below the Shawnee County Courthouse in Topeka, Kansas, sits a massive civil defense bomb shelter. With blast-resistant doors, escape hatches, and supplies for two weeks, this shelter was one of the largest in the Midwest. But it wasn't intended for you and me. Instead, it was constructed to exclusively house the capital city's most important leadership. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a telephone from this Cold War-era bomb shelter. Then, join us as we step into the bomb shelter that has become the Shawnee County Department of Emergency Management. Staff members reveal that though constructed to absorb the shock of a nuclear detonation, bomb shelters don't work so well as office space. Finally, we celebrate Black History Month by connecting William Allen White to abolitionist and former slave Frederick Douglass. Did White, an editor from Emporia, Kansas, endorse Douglas when he became the first black man to run for vice president in 1872? You'll find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, the red telephone. Good morning, Merle. Good morning, Michaela. We are going to talk today about the subject of your last Cool Things article, which is a phone that was used in the Emergency Operations Center at the Shawnee County Courthouse. Correct. The phone is um, kind of a 1950s style, that typical uh, turquoise blue color uh, with a rotary dial on on one side of the phone and uh, line extensions on the other. Mm -hmm. And it's got a red receiver. It does have a red receiver, yep. The only part of the phone that's red, the receiver. And it's got a separate detached speaker, which is very... Very Mad Men or something Right, right. Kind of an intercom speaker. And it's got like a little switchboard on the right side where you could hold calls or direct calls. Okay, Merle, can you um, describe the city's emergency operations center? Uh, Was it simply a walkie-talkie and a root cellar, or was it something more sophisticated? The Shawnee County Emergency Operations Center is, um, is surprisingly sophisticated. And it was surprisingly sophisticated for the time period in which it was built. The, um, the Emergency Operations Center is basically a nuclear fallout shelter or a nuclear bomb shelter. It was, con- it was constructed in 1951, um, and that's when the new Shawnee County Courthouse was built. The project was spearheaded, spearheaded by Shawnee County slash City of Topeka's Civil Defense Program, which that, um, that started in 1951. It developed over the years. It started out basically uh, as an inst- as an agency within the city that operated air raid sirens and uh, rehearsed some evacuation drills. And they did some other kind of goofy things around town, but they weren't really anything substantial. <clears throat> Eventually, as the Cold War progressed, the organization got more money and they were able to do more things, finally resulting in this rather substantial bomb shelter. This bomb shelter was part of a much larger movement throughout the U.S. during the Cold War um, to construct 
large shelters, um, oftentimes for the communities to reside in should something happen, should a nuclear disaster happen. And in fact, in Kansas City and Chicago, some of the other major Midwest cities, um, there's some caves located in areas around town that were all scoped out to see how suitable they would be to serve as shelters for the population of the city. It's important to note, though, that there was plenty of plans, and these plans were all developed by these civil defense agencies, reaction plans, um, of all the plans that were developed really um, there wasn't really that many large municipal bomb shelter bomb shelters constructed. I mean, it was intended not only as a, um, a relocation point uh, or for a place for people to reside, but it was intended to also be the offices of the civil defense program. Over the years, civil defense has evolved into what we know today as emergency management. It's really kind of the same concept, but emergency management would be the theory of a much of any type of emergency, not just things of a military nature. Mm -hmm. But um, so they still work out of that office. Some of the characteristics, uh, there's a 12 inch thick steel hatch that's on huge steel um, latches that, that is held open so you can go inside of it. And it's very heavy. It is very heavy. There's like these giant specifically designed conical shaped pillars to hold up um, to hold up this like ceiling that is like over two feet thick concrete. Um, there's an escape, the coolest part, there's an escape <laughs> hatch to the ground level. Uh, all the air circulation systems and all the clocks in the building are all mounted on these giant springs that were uh, intended to absorb some of the seismic shock mm -hmm. from a, a nuclear detonation. Um, Which is they, kind of weird to see a clock mounted between two springs. <laughs> <laughs> it seems a bit overkill, but, you know, it's important to keep your time. Keep time. Um, there's a fully stocked, or there was at least, a fully stocked infirmary, which you, was actually capable of facilitating surgery. I mean, there was an operating table and, like, surgical lights. And there's men and women's dormitories down there. So, I mean, it, it was fully stocked and impressive. Okay, so what is a civil defense program, and how did Topeka Shawnee Counties operate? A civil defense program, that's basically a federal or state or a local agency that was established um, starting in the 1950s. Um, it's established to prepare the civilian population for a military attack. This all evolves from the aftermath of World War II when the Soviet Union and the United States both developed the nuclear weapon. The U.S. actually uses the nuclear weapon on Japan, um, and that ignites an arms race between the two countries. So civil defense was a way for local governments and the federal governments to try to organize some type of response, have a plan prepared for people, uh, for what people should do should something happen. So like I said, in 1951, Topeka and Shawnee County, they came together, signed an agreement to form a joint civil defense program, and it was housed upstairs in the old courthouse. And when they built the new one, they moved them downstairs. Seems a little safer. It does. So who used the facility? Was anyone from Kansas, any Kansan allowed to take shelter there, or was it just specific people? Unlike some of the larger community bomb shelters, this shelter was not really intended for the general public. Um, it had a pretty targeted audience of, of who was going to be residing down there. Topeka is the capital city of Kansas, so maintaining city services in Topeka is critical because that, in essence, maintains the state government operations. So with that in mind, when these planners, these county planners were developing this courthouse, the plan was that it was only going to house 130 of the most 
uh, important people in Shawnee County. Uh. Let me phrase that again. <laughs> it would only house 130 of, uh, of the county and city leadership. So... It was you and I couldn't come off the street and go. We were go, on our own. Just. We were on our own. But if you were a if you were a city councilman for Topeka or a Shawnee County commissioner, you probably had a bunk with your name on it down there in the dormitory. So uh, an incentive to run for office then is getting a bunk in the dormitory. <laughs> right, is to survive the apocalypse. Um, like I said, so 130 city officials, which included county leaders, some military liaisons, um, emergency personnel, law enforcement. You also had um, some judges that were going to be down there and you had personnel from like um, from the Red Cross and, and some of the non-governmental organizations. It was intended that they would be down there at least for two weeks, um, possibly up to 90 days. What I think is funny is is it was going to be manned and operated. There wasn't staff that were waiting to be, I mean, it was going to be operated and, and these leaders were going to take shifts running the show, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, you might have a, a, a judge back there cooking in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> Which so, was called the emergency feeding center. Yeah, yeah it's, it's so called the funny. emergency feeding center. Like, you just move up to the trough. <laughs> um, so another thing is what's, what's cool also is, what I thought was cool was, this bomb shelter also had a media center in it for newspapers, newspaper reporters to file stories. Like I said, information um, information is critical to keep the flow going. And so one of the plans was that newspaper reporters from newspapers would reside in the media center. And there's actually a spot there with uh, that they could transmit stories. Mm -hmm. I don't know who they're sending these stories to. <laughs> yeah, because obviously you and I have died from radiation already. So yeah. yeah. So what's interesting is this concept is not just specific to Topeka. It actually sort of is very similar to a model that the federal government had when they constructed the Greenbrier Resort Hotel in West Virginia. Um, the hotel already existed, but they sort of... Um, expanded on it in secret. They added this giant underground addition, which was supposed to be the relocation point for Congress should nuclear war ever break out. But it's, it just amazes me because at some point you would actually have, I mean, I'm just visioning this, at some point you would actually have, you know, city councilmen or county commissioners um, like pulling the steel hat shut <laughs> as their citizens are fighting to get in. And they say, no, you can't. Well, you know, if the citizens were to die from radiation poisoning, that might not be such a bad thing. If you were the commissioner that locked people out of the bunker, you your may. chances for re-election are probably pretty slim. Exactly. <laughs> That's true. So let's talk about the heart of your article and maybe the heart of the communication center, this phone that you've written your article about. Mm -hmm. um, as we mentioned, the phone was part of the equipment that was used in the emergency operations center. And what I want to know is, was Shawnee County important enough to require a red phone, or did officials just have phone envy of the White House. <laughs> right. Um, that is a good question. You're talking about the fact that there is a red receiver on the phone. And right. coming out of a civil defense bomb shelter, a red phone is very reminiscent of what's known as the Moscow to Washington hotline, which was the red phone that sat in the president's office. It mm -hmm. was a direct link between Washington to Moscow, mm -hmm. um, which resulted in a red phone sitting in the Oval Office which throughout the years kind of came to be, came to symbolize um, sort of the ultimate power of the presidency as though, I mean, it gets a little bit confused, the, the, the image gets a little bit confused as though the red, red phone is like, you know, hooked up to some missile silo somewhere and it's gonna <laughs> launch. But um, 
And, and you'll often see it referenced from time to time. This phone is referenced in presidential campaign ads, right. starting with Walter Mondale and even ending within this last 2008 mm-hmm. election cycle with Hillary Clinton, uh, a phone ringing in the office. Um, who has the who has the ability or who has the leadership to answer it? Mm-hmm. Well, that phone <laughs> is coming. You know, it's a call from Moscow or somebody. So a red phone can also uh, indicate just general emergency, as though um, that receiver is used for a specific purpose. It's not used for county employees to order pizza. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> it's used for uh, you know for emergency management issues. So I would say that is probably why the red phone is there. Um, and it is interesting to note that it was down there for like 20 years. The phone was down there for like, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Um, uh, and it was only used one time. And that was in 1966 when the tornado hit Topeka. Mm-hmm. Um, we experienced a little of this um, when you and I did a podcast before about your about a civil defense kit uh, that, in, that included food and being locked in a bomb shelter. Um, we lasted in your office about 15 minutes before dying of boredom. <laughs> and we can assume that during a nuclear disaster, someone would have to spend more than 15 minutes in an underground shelter. So what do you think that people would do for fun when they were down there to keep from going crazy? And I'll give you an example. Okay. If, if it were me, I'd occasionally run from the medical rooms yelling, Darn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not a nuclear physicist. That might, be, that might get me beaten up. So right. uh, what do you recommend right. instead? And that would probably also not instill calm uh, with the residents. Yeah, probably there. not. Probably not. <laughs> well, at first, I thought about suggesting uh, that you'd want to bring something like your PSP or your BlackBerry, something to keep you entertained while you're down there. Yeah. But since most nuclear disasters are usually followed with like a massive electromagnetic pulse that would render such devices useless, it looks like you probably have to go a little more low-tech. Um, so did you then, learn that on Jericho? <laughs> I did like that show. Uh, so then I would all, I was going to suggest, you know, something fun, like maybe a little bit of jump rope or tag or hide and seek. Oh, yeah. But if you think about that, you're in a confined space, close quarters with limited hygiene resources. Yeah. So maybe you don't want to encourage like a sweat-inducing activity. Maybe those yeah. should be avoided. So finally, <laughs> I thought basically you're down to playing some game boards, but you're in a room with county commissioners and city councilmen, so you probably should um, avoid Monopoly or right. Life because, you know, somebody... Like chess. Yeah, somebody's <laughs> going to yell at somebody about fraud or zoning issues. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So basically, I limited... I uh, Through a process of elimination, I'm going to have to suggest playing, like, Candyland. Oh, Candyland. Yeah. What about shoots at ladders? <laughs> you know, something to keep people positive yeah. while, the, while the world is falling apart outside. Sure. I think tic-tac-toe might even be out because there's way too much strategy there. Yeah. That could lead to some fights. Yeah. Don't want to play like Hangman. That could be depressing. Yeah, like yeah. No. Candyland it is. Okay. All right. Thanks, Merle. Now, join Nikayla Zimmerman and me as Dave Sturbance, the director of the Shawnee County Department of Emergency Management, takes us on a tour of his office, which just happens to be a massive bomb shelter from the 1960s. Your, your offices are currently housed below the Shawnee County Courthouse. Do you, do you, do you, does it still function as a bomb shelter? I mean, do you feel extra secure with your uh, office down here, two if floors I, below? If I close the vault door, If a bomb goes off, I'm safe. You're good. I'm good. Um, But the reality is being in the sub-basement of the Shawnee County Courthouse, it stinks. (laughs) 
I'm sure you noticed that. As, we did notice and, that as we were People need to understand that. That's the problem of being down in these shelters is they always stink. Man-made products, okay, man-made chemicals tend to be heavier than air. So guess where everything goes? All the, all the, all the nasty the odors come down. Plus, this is where all the sewers and everything drain to, so guess what? We also <laughs> have that. But another thing is this basement's always been inhabited since right after the building was built every day. And the reality is this was not designed to be inhabited every day of the week. Can you tell me, um, I'm looking at uh, one of the air ducts above us and several, several, a lot of the lighting devices and wiring, they're <coughs> suspended by springs or hung by large springs. Do, do, any idea what the function of the spring yeah, is? Yeah, everything that was built down here originally and anything that was in the way of wiring or ducts or anything down here, including all the, all the toilets and, and urinals and sinks, are all, all mounted on screens and springs, and that's so that they can be, take a shock of a hit. Like a, of an explosive a seismic impact yes. of some type. Most people get down here and don't even know what direction the real world is. It's, it's, yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> yeah, and a compass doesn't work out here. You said the infirmary had a steel table out there, and you thought... There, was, there used to be a stainless steel surgical table. So they could, was. They could actually... Like, I mean, kind of like this. Here's one of the other surgeons. I mean, that's an old stainless steel table. Mm -hmm. It was also in here. Yeah, they could cut on you. <laughs> and this was equipment and, and medication this that was, was intended to be part of the... So that the people that were down here could be taken care of, yes. Yes. So the problem, you know, the theory would be that there was possible injuries when people are, are brought down here. That's Absolutely. why they needed such a large amount. Yeah, and like I said, certain citizens, certain elected officials and stuff were supposed to come to here. And then they would lock the vault. Okay. See, for example, in here, everything's mounted. This is the men's restroom. And everything's mounted on rubber mounts or rubber hoses. All the urinals, are they're mounted on rubber yeah. mounts. Yeah. <laughs> Even, well, like, all the water faucets and the way the drains work, they're all mounted differently than what a normal house would be. Of course, again, you can see how we're all the ducts and all the pipes. It's all riding on spring carriers. Yeah, yeah. And then back to that room is the power room, so that's where all of the generators and all of our backup stuff comes from. Okay. Now, this was the men's dorm, and again, we use this for our classroom, but, and this is way bigger than the women's dorm, obviously, because there would have been mostly men here, but there used to be all the cots and all those things were here, so that if this activated, that's where it was at. So this is where our city councilmen, county commissioners, and judges are all going to be yes. Taking naps where, down here while this is where they would have been. all heck breaks loose up yes. on the surface. So I'm standing in the escape hatch, and this goes up to street level. If you know, if you go up to that, then there's a tube, and there's you can go up there, and then there's like a little sled thing, kind of like in the old. Well, you probably don't remember Hogan's Heroes, but you could actually pull yourself to the end of the tunnel, and then there's a way out out in the parking lot. Yeah, you come you come up some steps that are mounted in a, in a concrete. Uh, basically a concrete, concrete shaft and you come up here and there's a tunnel, there's like a horizontal tunnel with a sled, a wood sled that has little wheels so you can wheel yourself out. That's awesome. <laughs> so this was another room that's set up with telephones where oh, we wow. could like set up the press and call positions. And this, and do you think that's what this is? 
That's what this was originally intended to be, was like press or media offices. And call locations, yes. <laughs> so this is a fairly large room. Do you have any idea how many people um, this facility could have held? I was told that we were set up to handle 60 to 80 people for 60 to 90 days. Wow. So I don't know that I'd want to be down here with a county commissioner for 90 days. Well... You know, you had your choice. You were down here and alive, yeah. or you were out someplace else and on your own. We'll be fighting in the streets with our children and now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me this week is the museum's assistant director, Rebecca Martin. Hello. And our assistant registrar, Michaela Zimmerman. Hello. Uh, this week, we're celebrating Black History Month by connecting William Allen White, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author from Emporia, Kansas, to Frederick Douglass, a former slave that became an abolitionist, author, editor, and statesman. Statesman. <laughs> but I'm sure he made statements. I bet he did make his <laughs> yeah. statements. I'm driving on. <laughs> First, Rebecca, um, uh, we'd like you to read some feedback that we, that we recently received. Yes, uh, it's from another Rebecca. No relation. <laughs> she lives in Warman, Saskatchewan. So, or how else can you say Saskatchewan? Saskatchewan. <laughs> uh, but uh, we digress. <clears throat> and Rebecca from Saskatchewan writes: As a writer and a photographer, I spend a lot of time in front of the computer. I listen to a lot of science and history. We love the history. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for new podcasts when the title Cool Things in the Collection caught my eye. I grew up in South Dakota and have visited several places in Kansas, and so the podcast provides a bit of a taste of home for me. My favorite episodes have been the electronic football game, Agnes the Frog. That was a pretty good one. Mm -hmm. And the Bloody Benders. A classic. One of my favorites. <laughs> but I've learned something from each of them. In fact, I didn't know what BFF was <laughs> until listening to your podcast, not to mention that William Allen White had so many of them. Uh, Thank you, Rebecca. Yes. We are glad to enlighten you. Popular culture is it's always important to know what the latest acronyms or silly phrases are. That's right. From and the a, 1980s. <laughs> And apply them to historical figures. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thanks, Rebecca, for your comments. Now on to Frederick Douglass. First, I'll give you a little general background on Mr. Douglass. Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey, later known as Frederick Douglass, was born a slave in Maryland in 1818. His mother was sold while Douglass was an infant, and the identity of his father is uncertain, though some indications um, state that uh, it was probably a former white slave master. Um, which, of his know, mother. Yeah, <laughs> <Obviously>. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, when he was 12, Douglas began learning to read from the wife of his owner. Uh, she was actually teaching him to read, which was illegal in that day to teach slaves to become, uh, uh, to read, because it's easier to suppress a race if they're yeah. illiterate. Yeah. Um, he began teaching others to read. Um, after escaping to the North in 1838, Douglas became a free man in 1845 uh, when British supporters purchased his freedom. Douglas, uh, during the Civil War, Douglas pushed Lincoln to, co to commit to the Emancipation Proclamation. And during Reconstruction, Douglas served in several sig significant diplomatic positions and became a staunch advocate of women's suffrage. That's Mr. Douglas in a nutshell. There's obviously much more to him, but uh, 
you know, I could be at this all day. <laughs> Nikayla, I believe you have a solution. Uh, you have connected Mr. Douglas to William L. White. I have, yes. And you stole my thunder because you mentioned women's suffrage. So, oh. um, as you mentioned, Frederick Douglass was a firm believer in equal rights for all people, regardless of race or gender. And this brought him into the company of notable suffragists, among them Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And he signed the Declaration of Sentiments, which Stanton authored. It was kind of a Declaration of Independence for women. Mm -hmm. um, and as we know from previous podcasts, Elizabeth Cady Stanton was friends with William Allen White's mother, and she was known to visit the home of Dr. Allen and Mary Hatton White. So it is oh, possible that neat. William Allen White met her as a child. That's really cool. Yeah. So you did it in like three degrees? Yeah. That's pretty impressive. I also went uh, in about three degrees. Can I interrupt, too, just sure. so I can chime in here? There is another Kansas connection to a really famous woman suffragist, not necessarily through William L. White, but I just was reading the other day, Susan B. Anthony's brother, Daniel Anthony, was in Kansas um, around the 1850s, late 1850s. So that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't and know. Related to that, when I was doing the um, research for this, uh, Victoria Woodhull was another suffragist. Uh -huh. She Her second husband was um, James Blood, who was the first mayor of Lawrence. Wow. So lots of Kansas ties. Yeah. And there's a story, I mean, there's a, there's also a significant event with um, Frederick Douglass and uh, Woodhull, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> what was it? I don't remember. What Woodhull was nominated. Uh, yes, she was, was the, the presidential candidate for the Equal Rights Party, and he was her vice presidential nominee. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, I just read that today. <laughs> <laughs> Too many facts floating around. Yeah. I also have a solution. In 1888, Frederick Douglass was invited to speak at the Republican Convention in Chicago, Illinois. While there, Douglass's name was mentioned for nomination as a presidential candidate, and he actually received one vote from Kentucky. Um, during that same convention, um, Benjamin Harrison was actually nominated as a Republican candidate, and he went on to win the election. In 1901, William Allen White met Benjamin Harrison at his Indianapolis home only a few weeks before his death. Wow. So, three degrees. That's Again, cool. White with his, uh, he's got that thing for presidents. Yeah, what, was he, what was he meeting him for? Was it doesn't say. I read this in his biography, and it doesn't say exactly what he was meeting him for. It's mm -hmm. just from reading uh, the, his summary of the, of the narrative of the experience. It sounds like he was probably there interviewing um, for an article of some type. Yeah. But it doesn't say like if he was there to discuss. They talked a lot about a lot about Kansas politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and White, you know, it's it's not really the same today as it was back then. But newspaper editors had a lot of political influence mm -hmm. back then, and White being so wildly famous, um, he would have been he would have had access to presidents and ex presidents, yeah. and did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a very different time. Well, Rebecca, would you like to share the challenge for the next episode? It looks to be pretty fun. Uh, yeah, fun. Hmm. Uh, in the next episode, at the request of our listener, the other Rebecca from Saskatchewan, uh, we cut to the chase. Emphasis on cut. There you go. I didn't write this. When we connect William Allen White to Lizzie Borden in the 1890s, this unknown spinster became a cause celebre 
when she hacked her parents to death. I thought we were moving away from the dark side. <laughs> well, no. I can see the connection, though, like uh, Lizzie Borden to the Benders. So okay. I think, okay. yeah. I think Rebecca yeah. likes the macabre. Okay. I think she does, too. <laughs> um, well, at, at any rate, Lizzie Borden's story has become legend, primarily because it uh, was translated into a naughty schoolyard poem, and we were just chanting it before. <laughs> but we'll save that for next time. Yeah, yeah. So if you think you connect, you can connect William Allen White to a Massachusetts girl with a seriously short temper, just send your chain of connections to podcast at kshs.org. That is podcast with an S. This is a public service announcement. This is only a test. That concludes episode 75, The Red Telephone. If you would like to see images of this phone from a Cold War bomb shelter, just go to our website, kshs.org, and click on podcast. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I examine a stained glass window from the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. This fair was a cultural and technological extravaganza, attracting the likes of Theodore Roosevelt and Helen Keller. But, according to many accounts, the most popular feature of this fair was the indoor bathroom at the Kansas Building. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. 